Hey there, Rockers. This is just a friendly heads up from the team at No Filter Media to let you know that Season 3 of the Battle of the Bands podcast is starting to drop. Episode 1 and 2 on our season on Motley Crue vs. Bon Jovi are now live and streaming in all podcast players. You can catch all eight episodes over the next few days. And for a sneak peek, here's Episode 1. Twelve August, nineteen eighty-nine. Mikhail Gorbachev's communist reform movement, the Perestroika, was maturing and leading to the fall of the Berlin Wall and collapse of the Soviet Union itself. And on this day, 100,000 people crammed into Moscow's Luzhniki Stadium to see foreign hard rock and heavy metal acts perform on Russian soil for the first time ever. The event, the Moscow Peace Festival. The bands, Skid Row, Cinderella, The Scorpions, Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. The show was broadcast to 59 nations, including MTV in the US, and was allegedly used to promote an understanding between East and West. Kind of like Rocky Balboa's press conference in Rocky IV, only real. And while the festival was really just a front to help rock manager Doc McGee stay out of prison, more on that later this season, it was to prove a pivotal moment. Not only preempting the collapse of the Soviet Union months later, but perhaps the collapse of the big hair and excesses of the 1980s hard rock and glam metal scene. Performers were told that there was to be no headliner, no fireworks, just a collection of bands, most of whom were managed by Doc McGee, playing stripped back shows to raise money for McGee's Make a Difference Foundation. But as Motley Crue stormed off the stage, they just trashed after performing a blistering rendition of Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock, and Bon Jovi assumed their position. The unthinkable happened, and it would change everything. But first, we need to understand how we got here. We need to go back, way back, to 1980, to the wild streets of West Hollywood, where one Frank Ferrana Jr. was about to meet one Thomas Lee Bass, better known today as Nikki Six and Tommy Lee. Sitting out at a Denny's Diner, Nikki Six is a free agent. Having quit local, going nowhere fast cult heroes London, a band that would prove to be the launchpad, but nothing more, for numerous rock and metal personalities such as Guns N' Roses' Steven Tyler, Izzy Stradlin and Slash, Cinderella's Fred Curry and Wasp's Blackie Lawless, Six was a troubled young punk who had spent his childhood reeling from being abandoned by his dad, Frank Farana Sr. While just a child living in Idaho, Six discovered AM radio. He discovered music and it became his solace. It was his outlet. Over the years, it became his source of strength, purpose, and identity. Drawing inspiration from bands like Aerosmith and the New York Dolls, Six set his sights on forming a band that would push the boundaries of rock music. 
something that would take these bands, but turn up not only the volume, but the look, the attitude, and the energy to 11. Tommy Lee's childhood could not have been any further removed from Sixes. It was by most standards idyllic, having been raised in a loving and supportive middle-class family with happily married parents. But despite this, the happy-go-lucky drummer still had a heart that bled for rock and roll, and everything that came with it, especially the groupies. Inspired by Van Halen, Cheap Trick, Kiss, and ACDC, Tommy Lee was a hard hitter who had been making a small name for himself in local act Sweet 19. But he too wanted something bigger. Sitting at that Denny's, flanked by Lee's friend and future co-founder and bassist for metal band Armored Saint, Joey Vera, Six turns to Lee. Let's go back to my place and jam. Lee, who had a poster of Nicky Six performing for London on his bedroom wall at the time, jumps at the chance. Six plays some demo songs and Lee starts beating along to them. After a brief jam session, it becomes apparent that there's magic between the pair, and they join forces. Rhythm section in tow, the pair start looking for a singer. But Lee has someone in mind already. We gotta check out my friend Vince from high school playing at a party this weekend. At said party, Lee and Six eye off Neil's performance. Sure, he was an okay singer with a distinctive snarl, but just look at how the girls were reacting to him. With Mexican ancestry on his mother's side and Native American ancestry on his father's side, Vincent Neil Warden, or just Vince Neil, oozed sex appeal with his blonde hair, chiseled body, and tanned Californian surfer boy looks. He would be the perfect frontman for the band, like David Lee Roth, just younger and a little crazier. But Neil has no interest in leaving Rock Candy. I've got a good thing going here. Look, here's out demo tape. Just listen to it. Listen to it, he does. But he thinks the yet nameless band is lame and carries on with his life. In the interim, the band briefly hire the services of Odeon Peterson, but fire him almost just as quickly after he refuses to take his white gloves off to record clapping at the end of the band's song, Toast of the Town. It turns out to be perfect timing. That same week, Rock Candy was to play a party in Hollywood on the weekend, but the guitarist and bass player don't show up, leaving Vince in the lurch. Apparently, they want to become a new wave act. Down on his luck, Vince receives a call from Tommy. An audition is arranged, and after hearing Vince's inimitable snarl on Livewire, he's welcomed into the fold. But while they already had a guitarist in Robin Moore, Six figured they needed a second lead guitarist to round out their sound. Flicking through the classifieds in the recycler, Tommy Lee scans the musician's wanted ads and comes across an ad for a guitarist. Check this out. Loud, rude, aggressive guitar player seeks working band. Older and more experienced than the rest of the band, years later, Mick Mars would laugh that he actually auditioned them. But while the audition went well for Mars, or Motley Crue, depending on how you look at it, it didn't go well for Moore, who Mars urged the band to cut, and the band quickly acquiesced. So what do we call ourselves? Remembering hearing someone refer to his old band Whitehorse as a motley-looking crew, Mars responds, and with that, Motley Crew was born. But not before Nicky Six changed the spelling and added some rock and roll umlauts. We thought it made us look European. Vince Neil remembers. 
Their early days were marked by club gig after club gig. Wherever they could play in Hollywood, they did play. And while the band had a collection of raw and raucous songs, showcasing the band's explosive energy and rebellious spirit, songs like Livewire and Piece of Your Action, their image was just as outrageous and attention-grabbing as their sound. They embraced a look that blended glam, punk, and heavy metal influences, with their leather, spandex, and wild big-top hairstyles becoming iconic symbols of the 80s hard rock scene. In May 1981, Motley Crue take a significant step forward by supporting Stormer at Pookies, a 200-capacity sandwich and beer shop in Pasadena. Despite an audience of only 12 people, the band unleashed their explosive energy, leaving an unforgettable impression. While their stage attire was limited to street clothes due to a mishap with their roadie driving off with their clothes, their performance showcased the raw talent and potential that would soon catapult them to stardom. But it was June 6, 1981 that marked a turning point for the band, playing their first show at the legendary Troubadour. They set a new attendance record at the iconic venue, catching the attention of none other than David Lee Roth from Van Halen. The band continued to relentlessly promote themselves, telling anyone they knew to tell anyone they knew about the band, and handing out flyers and sticking them up all over West Hollywood. Thinking and acting bigger than their peers, Motley Crue embarked on its Anywhere USA tour, organized by new manager Alan Kaufman. They performed in Kaufman's hometown of Grass Valley, playing to sell out crowds in 350 to 600 seat theaters. Two weeks later, the band found themselves performing at the Tommy Knacker, unaware that it was a Hollywood costume night. As they kicked off their set with songs like Stick to Your Guns, the crowd seemed unresponsive. Shifting gears and closing the set with spirited renditions of Jailhouse Rock and Hound Dog, the band head to a party. Here, Vince Neil finds himself in a curious situation. Seeking some recreational indulgence, he acquires a bag of what he believed to be cocaine from one of the drag queens present. He retreats to the bathroom to partake, only to realize that the substance is not cocaine, but baby powder. Frustrated and feeling deceived, Vince confronts the drag queen. That was fucking baby powder. Give me my fucking money back. An altercation ensues and quickly escalates into a brawl, with Vince throwing a punch that draws blood. Perhaps a sign of things to come for the band. As Motley Crue navigate the challenges of their rising fame, they're also faced with the realities of everyday life. Manager Alan Kaufman secures a two-bedroom apartment at 1140 North Clark Street just a stone's throw away from the world-famous Whiskey-A-Go-Go. Affectionately known as the Motley House, it becomes their sanctuary, a place to call home amidst the chaos. It becomes the usual post-Whiskey or Roxy hangout for late-night rock and roll revelers. And after a while, the rotting brown front door of the apartment doesn't shut properly after police repeatedly kick it in due to disturbances. And so, Tommy's girlfriend Lisa smashes the front window with a fire extinguisher and it becomes the way in and out of the Motley house. Although the apartment had a cockroach infested kitchen, trash everywhere 
and human excrement-drenched walls and carpets, it was theirs, and it meant that they didn't need to worry about finding a place to live, and could instead focus on their music. And the women. One night, the mirror on the back of their bedroom door fell on David Lee Roth's head while he was preparing a line of coke, miraculously leaving his stash and his head intact. It was testament to the wild and unpredictable nature of their lifestyle. Another night, amidst the chaos and revelry, a girl with an unusual talent emerged, much to the amusement and astonishment of onlookers. As the legend goes, Tommy Lee would offer his services and she would unleash a gushing stream, drenching unsuspecting partygoers and adding yet another outrageous tale to the ever-growing lore of the Motley House. Despite the chaos and eviction notice that would follow just nine months after moving in, Motley crew pressed forward. In their quest to further enhance their stage presence, they enlist the help of Richard Crouch, who builds a tiered drum riser, complete with 15 flashing lights. This eye-catching addition, inspired by Queen, added a touch of spectacle to their shows. Little did they know that years later, they would sell that drum riser to their friends in Rat, who featured it in their music video for Round and Round. It's around this time that while on stage, Nicky Six lights a match and sets his leather stiletto boots, which had been doused in an alcohol mix, on fire. Something he got into a habit of doing during the band's early days, and something that drew the crowds and distinguished the wild boys in the crew from the pretty boys on the Sunset Strip. In December of 1981, with the year drawing to a close, buoyed on by the strength of their live shows and attendances, and fast becoming the hottest ticket on the local scene, Motley Crue reached a significant milestone. They released their debut album, Too Fast For Love, which had been recorded over a wild and drunken four-day session at Hit City West Studios. Too Fast For Love, initially released on their own Leather Records label, featured white lettering on the cover and a provocative close-up of Vince Neil's crotch, inspired by the Rolling Stones. With limited copies available, the album becomes a sought-after gem amongst Hollywood's rock and roll community. As 1981 draws to a close, the crew celebrate their achievements while gearing up for what lay ahead. And while the band might be dreaming of a road paved with gold, they find themselves navigating one paved with blood. And across the country, a young John Francis Bongiovi Jr. puts together a band. If you enjoy Battle of the Bands, take a moment to subscribe wherever you listen to it. Leave a review, or better yet, tell a friend. You can follow us on our new social accounts on Instagram and Twitter at Battle Bands Pod. Find our group at Battle of the Bands Podcast on Facebook and access full episode transcripts, sources, and more at battleofthebandspod.com. Until next time, keep your headphones in and your horns up.